Now, I wasn't uh, here last week. We were away, so I didn't uh, listen to all that was said. But uh, I caught up with it because I had to present this week. And so uh, uh, just by way of review, we're in uh, Malachi, by the way, the first chapter of Malachi. By way of review, who was Malachi? Somebody who was here last week? Not quite sure, right? So what, what does his name mean? My messenger, my, my messenger, okay. And uh, we're not quite sure who he was, but uh, what nationality? He was Jewish. And uh, uh, what area did he uh, most likely live in? Was he the southern kingdom? Southern kingdom, yeah. And probably around Jerusalem, because uh, when we read through Malachi, we see a lot of reference to the temple worship and things going on around Jerusalem. And uh, when did uh, he? Uh, when did he prophesy? When did he prophesy? Okay, that's right. And and uh, he's at the last of the Old Testament because, hi Mike, he's at the last of the prophets. All right, and and uh, this the, the prophets are are divided into three sections. There's there's pre-exile, exile, and post-exile, and so Malachi would be post-exile, meaning that's when the uh, the Jews came back from their captivity in Babylon, and uh, they, they started to rebuild Jerusalem. They started to rebuild the temple, the days of Ezra and Nehemiah. They started to rebuild again. And so uh, they came back around uh, uh, 536, or uh, yeah, somewhere around 536, and uh, somewhere between coming back from around 536 down to as as uh, Tamara said, 400 was, was probably where Malachi was, was giving his address. And we can't peg it exactly because there's no reference to any king in Malachi. Some of the other, some of the other prophets say in the days of, uh, as in Isaiah says, in the days of Uzziah. Then we can peg it to the, to the reign of a king. But we can't do, do it with Malachi, but we presume it's somewhere in the post-exilic time from about 536 down to about 400. And then after 400, there's no prophets for 400 years. No prophets for 400 years. And we call that the, the, the silent 400 years uh, before the Lord Jesus comes. So Malachi really is the last voice to Israel for a long, long time. So he's kind of important. Uh, the last prophet to speak in the, in the Old Testament before the days of, of uh, John the Baptist who came. The next prophet was 400 years later, and that was John the Baptist. So that's, that's Malachi. So uh, uh, once again, by way of review, I, I think Josiah took the first five verses, and uh, uh, 
Oh, by the way, Malachi starts with an oracle. What does the word oracle mean? An oracle. A speech, a message, that, that they're all pertinent words. All right. Another one would be a, a burden, the burden, or the, 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 you know, he had something on his heart to give, and so he unburdened himself by delivering this message to Israel. Sometimes I feel that when God puts a message on my heart to preach, it's like a burden, and afterwards people say, well, uh, uh, how do you feel after, after the sermon? I'm relieved because I was able to unload what God had given me uh, to the people, and I felt unburdened as a result. So that, that, that there's an idea of unburdening uh, in, in the idea of oracle as well. You better get in and get a seat, dear, because everybody's filling up here. <laughs> hey, Alice, you did a great job last night. That, that was fantastic. It's just amazing. Hey, Jim, I was just thinking about when, when God talked to Abraham, and he talked about the people of Israel being uh, in captivity for like 400 years. It's not really interesting that it's 400 years then, and it's 400 years before Christ was coming, right? So that idea of the deliverer would come after 400 years, it's kind of a parallel. Right? There's a parallel. I've never seen that before, Mike. That's amazing, yeah. yeah. That's, that's interesting. There's nothing magic about 400 years or 40 years or anything like that? No. But two, two blocks of time that fit in the Old Testament. That's right. Very interesting. So in these first verses here, uh, the oracle, the first burden that he had to tell the people uh, is a message from the Lord. He says, I have loved you. But then in, in, in reply... And this is a common refrain through the book of Malachi. The, the Lord says something, and the people kind of rebut. They retort to God. And they say, the people say, but you ask, how have you loved us? And so the question here is this. God has loved them. Do they figure it out that God has loved them? One of the commonest things in counseling, and I do a lot of Christian counseling, one of the commonest things in counseling is that people don't believe that God loves them. We, they haven't gotten it yet. And maybe in their head, they say, God, yeah, yeah, the Bible says, Jesus loves me, this I know. But they don't believe it. Is that, a, is that a, an issue? When you've talked to people, or maybe in your own life, you know, when you... you you're really thinking, does God really love me? Times are hard. <laughs> and it's difficult to counsel someone who's really blind to the fact that God is and that God loves. Yes. And, and in Christian counseling, people have come to the understanding that God is. So they, they've gotten past that hurdle, right? They're not atheists anymore. But this is one of the biggest doubts that people have. So in answer to that question, how, how did he answer it in those, in those early verses? See, this is, this is a review for the people who weren't here last week because uh, we need to reestablish where we are in the book. All right. how, does, how does God uh, uh, answer that, uh, that question mark that's in their heads?
Yes. And and how does how does he prove that he chose them? Yes. And what what was the what was the proof that was it, that that he gives for ha, ha, that the result of that choice in in these verses? Yes. In, the, in these verses, what is the proof that he offers that Jacob were the blessed, that the, the, the sons of Jacob were the blessed people and, and the, the, the sons of Esau were not? What? The land is blessed for Jacob yep. and cursed for Esau. And cursed for Esau. He's, he's referring back to history, you know, and this is what we got to do as believers when, when we're faced with this question, you know, does, does uh, uh, God really love me? Where should we go back to? Count the blessings. We come, count the blessing, and what's the greatest blessing? Salvation. Christ and, and and salvation. You see, I believe this: the most important thing, the most important thing for Christians is to establish the history that God has loved, and settle it in your minds. Settling settling it in your minds is so important. Why? What's the most important reason why I know that Jesus loves me, that God loves me? Absolutely. You know, it's the cross of Jesus. It's the cross. We go back to the cross and we say, we look at the cross and we say, does God love me? Most important thing to do. Don't look at the present circumstance first. Look at the past history. And that's what he's telling them. See, look at the past. Don't look at the present, because in the present, you might be in a lot of trouble and in a lot of pain. Does God love me? Right? He also saved me. Yeah, he saved me. And he saved me through, not the present circumstance of today, he saved me at the cross. And that's why when, when uh, Paul comes to declare the gospel in first Corinthians he says I, I determined that I was going to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified so time after time when I'm counseling people who, who have this doubt I say well let's go back to the cross what happened there and what does that prove to you <laughs> right? and get your get your eye on the cross get your eye on the on that fact of history that Jesus suffered and bled and died on the cross to pay for my sins. And if somebody does that for me, guess what? He loves me. He loves me because he gave his all for me. So that's, uh, uh, that's what he says. And then he, then he says in verse 5, you will see it with your own eyes. In other words, it's going to be proven to you that, uh, uh, that God's love uh, is, is upon you. And uh, because God is going to work on the nations to bless you, and those who curse you, he's going to curse. And Edom was opposed to, to the nation of Israel, and, and they were surely cursed. So let's go on now. That's, that was all by way of review. Let's go on and read. Uh, let's see. Um, somebody read verse 6 and... Uh, Verse, verse 6, just read verse 6. Somebody read it out for us. 
of the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name. But you asked, how have you shown contempt for your name? Okay. Uh, I trust you've read through this passage already, and uh, I trust you've looked at the notes, because I've got Josiah's notes. By the way, these are excellent notes that Josiah makes. Uh, those are notes to keep, because uh, uh, they're, they're very excellent notes, and uh, uh, he leads us very well through the passage. And uh, he titles this, this uh, section, Dishonoring God's Name. Dishonoring God's name. He says, while the first message ended with a declaration of God's greatness, the second addresses Israel's failure to recognize God's greatness. And references to God's name is explicitly made eight times in this section. We, even in verse 6, it's, it's mentioned twice. If you're going to find out the essence of a passage and you're, you're just kind of trying to open it up for yourself, look at the words that are used. In my younger days, especially when I was studying the scriptures, I had, I had a pencil and I, had, uh, I would write down the number of, of times a certain word was mentioned through a passage. And then you'd get the idea of, of what he's talking about. And so uh, how many times? Eight times in this section from uh, chapter 1, verse 6 to chapter 2, verse 9, he mentions the name the name. Somebody was out in the parking lot uh, uh, when we came in uh, doing some uh, yoga out at the back. Did you see see that person? I wonder what God, what uh, name he would call God. Uh, Maybe he's he's a Christian, I don't know, but maybe he's not. Maybe he's uh, Buddhist or maybe he's... uh, uh, a Hindu, and he's doing these, these exercises as part of a, a religious thing, you see. He's got another name for God. What's so important about the name we call God? What's so important about it? Ours is so uniquely as Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. I do find a lot of people use the word God very loosely, could be in form of a curse, but I also find interesting people from different faiths that have nothing to do with Christianity, they still use the word God, sometimes to identify Allah, and uh, I know with the individuals who are uh, Hindu, they'll, they'll say various gods. So the word God with a small g. Yeah. Yeah, because there's, there's many gods. People, people ascribe many different names to God. And so in the Old Testament, God had a name. And uh, it, it was actually such a holy name that people were reluctant even to pronounce it. When they wrote it in script, they didn't write the name. They just wrote, wrote uh, consonants that referred to the name uh, because they were reluctant to, to pronounce that name. And we know that name as Yahweh or Jehovah. That's the English translation of the name Jehovah. His name is Yahweh. And he's the self-existent one. When, when he, he uh, appeared to Moses at the burning bush, he's, and Moses says, what is your name? He says, my name is, I am. I am the self-existent one. Yahweh is his name. All right. And that's to, be, 
That was to be distinguished from all the other gods, all the other Baals, all the other Asherahs, all the other names of Molech and, and all these gods that the nations had. Yahweh has a name, and his name is, is distinct from all the others. He is the self-existent one, Yahweh. In the New Testament, <laughs> we know that God has further revealed himself not only as Yahweh, but he's revealed himself in the person of his son, and his name is Jesus. Jesus. What's so important about that name? God with us. That's true. The self-existent one, wonderful, and now the self-existent one is with us in the person of his son, Jesus. I tell you, in, even in this day and age, you can talk freely about God. And atheists will say, well, we don't believe in that, see, but nobody's going to be too offended if you talk about God. You start talking about Jesus, you're in trouble. See, because now you're delineating a certain name that's attached to it. Can you think of any verses that tell us the importance of the name of Jesus? The name of Jesus. And that, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's Philippians chapter 2, verses 8 to 9. Yeah. Okay. Where, do you know where it is? Yes, Acts chapter 4, verse 12. All right, no other name under heaven given amongst men whereby we must be saved. That was Peter's sermon, you see. Uh, these are powerful verses, and they are very exclusive, aren't they? And that's why God says, my name is to be honored because I am the exclusive God. I am the, I'm the self-existent one. I'm the revealed one. And especially the name is Jesus. And one of my favorite verses is Romans chapter 10, verse 13. The one who calls <clears throat> on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's the value of the name. There is, there is power in that name, power to save. You know, he's the glorious God who's revealed himself. <clears throat> and what were they doing? It says <clears throat> in verse 6, uh, a son honors his father, a servant his master. If I'm a father, where's the honor that is due me? If I'm a master, where's the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you, O priests, who show contempt for my name, but you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? This word honor. Uh, where is the honor that is due me? What does it mean? You know, a regard? I didn't get that one. Respect. Respect. Respect, yes. Certainly a part of honoring. Reverence. Reverence. You know, I walk, uh, I walk into a, 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 a gas station, pay for my gas, and it says, uh, we honor all major credit cards. That's how it's used in our English language. What does it mean? We honor all major credit cards. Accept. We accept. Yes. Not only accept, but what, what do they do? 
They praise. Praise, yes, but, but do we praise credit cards? Yeah. So we can, it, it's a honoring, uh, praising is a consequence of us honoring, all right? It certainly is a related word. The S, what's, what? Value to give value. In other words, we're saying, listen, if you bring in that credit card, it's like money to us. We value it. The essence of honor is valuing. Putting a value on it. So when we say we highly honor someone or something, you see, we're putting a high value on it. Putting a high value. And it really is the essence of true love. When you honor, you are showing true love. You're putting a value on something. A value. Uh, the, the, the word agape, the, the word love in, in the New Testament, which is commonly uh, uh, used most, most times in, in the New Testament, the word, the word love is agape. And, and the word agape is based upon prizing or valuing. So when a guy says to a girl, I love you, it's, I thought you said it's scary. <laughs> I didn't hear you. I can't hear you. Eros, Eros love, yes. Okay. Uh, well, Eros is a, is a part of love is a part of love, that's, that's, that's romantic love. But when, when I say I love you, if, the, if, if we're really understanding it from a godly scriptural point of view, we're saying this, I put a high value upon you. I am going to treat you with honor. Now you see how that's been lost today? See how that's been lost? We have cheapened the word love. Because love is just, just like, I like you. You know, I, I feel good when I'm around you. And that's okay. That's like, right? But what we've done is we've made like and love to be the same words. You know, I really like you. And I, when I like you a lot, I love you. But when God is lo- using that word, he doesn't say, well, you know, I really like you. What he's saying is this. I put a high value upon you. You are so valuable to me. You're so precious to me. And that's what he's saying in in verse 2. I have put a high value upon you. And and such a high value that I give my life for you. I put a high value upon you. And now, in verse 6, what he's saying is this. Where's the love that comes back to me? Where's, where's the love? Where's the love that comes back? Do you put a high value upon me? Do you treat me with respect? Do you treat me with, with uh, 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 kindness? Do you treat me as if I am an important person in your life? So the question is, how have we shown contempt for your name? And by the way, the opposite of honor is contempt. When I, when I see people in marriage counseling and I hear contempt, 
I know that that marriage is in great trouble, you know. I just can't stand, he's contemptible to me, or she's contemptible to me. Uh, I don't value her anymore. I despise her. I despise him. Uh, that means that love is gone, and his love has been replaced by this contempt, right? We, we devalue the person in our thinking. Something that's contemptible is totally devalued. Not precious anymore. Something to be thrown away, something to be mistreated. Right? And that is what God is saying is the measure of their love. They were, they were mistreating God. Well, let's go on and, and verse 7. Somebody read verse 7 and down to verse uh, the end of the chapter, okay? Read verse 7 to the end of the chapter, please. Thank you, Rose. So, in the first section, the problem is they don't believe God loves them. But it goes from bad to worse, because now the Lord is identifying the fact that not only do they believe that God doesn't love them very well, they don't love God back. Those are the two biggest problems in the Christian life. Okay, number one, I got to I got to trust that God loves me. Number two, I got to learn to love Him back. And when I've mastered those two, I will be a successful and victorious believer. <laughs> right? I will be a successful and victorious believer. I have, I have learned to love God back. But here we have the priests, as it says in verse six. And what is the measure of their love? 
It's the way that they conduct themselves in the temple. It's the way they offer sacrifices to God. And what was the problem? What's the problem that's being defined here? Defiled, yeah. What were what? In which way were they defiled? They were either lame, blind, sick animals. Yeah. Now the priest we know had to bring not only the sacrifices of the people, but they had to bring their own sacrifice. The priests were obligated to bring their own sacrifice first. So he's addressing this primarily, in verse 6, to the priests. Now, it's very likely that the people were doing the same thing because uh, if they were the examples, the people were probably doing the same thing and say, well, if the priest can get away with a sick and diseased animal and put it on the altar, maybe I can too. And so everyone stopped giving their best, and they started giving, they, every, they started giving crippled, diseased animals, animals that were good for nothing else, uh, Maybe it was uh, uh, some uh, malnutrition in the animal or that animal had, had, uh, had some uh, uh, crippled, crippling effect to it. Uh, and, and they said, well, it's good for nothing else. Let's give it to God. Is this love? No, it's not love. Now we reflect on our own lives. We reflect on our own lives. What kind of offerings do we give to the Lord? What kind of offerings? And in what areas do you think this would apply? What, what areas of life would this apply? Time? Money? Yeah. All areas, oh, sorry, Sue, yeah, all areas of life, absolutely. I can't tell when people have got masks on who's talking, I'm sorry. Uh, it certainly is all areas of life, but just to delineate those areas, you see, there's time, there's money. Our minds. Our minds. Uh, how much time of thinking, how much thinking do we give to God? How much do we seek to know him? You know, um, in here when they say that they give the deceased animals to the God Almighty, so I was wondering, um, did they, in their own days, sacrifice the best life to the Baals? You know what I mean? Because they're walking out of God's will, but they're doing their own thing. So I'm wondering if they save the best for the you know, this could easily have happened because uh, it, throughout the wilderness journey, we know that they carried the, the idols of Egypt with them. So maybe in their own tents, they were giving more honor and, and more value to those gods of Egypt than they were giving to, to Yahweh. That's right. Maybe it was for personal gain that they were withholding the best of the flock, right? But see, what it boils down to is this. Just second-rate love. Second-rate love. 
rather than first love. It says of the Ephesians church, you know, I have this against you, that you've, you've lost your first love. God wasn't getting the best. He was getting the, the, he was getting the seconds. He was getting the remains. He was getting that which was poor. And I think this is wise for us to reflect on our own lives, you see. What's, how, how are we valuing God? How are we honoring the Lord? Do we give him the best? It's a priority. And, and our strength, you know, people last night were running around serving. And, and uh, if they saw it correctly, you know, that, that's, they were serving God. They weren't just serving people. They were serving God. We give the best of our strength. What's a good verse for this? Yeah, and all your strength, it says in the book of Mark, right? That's Mark 12, verse 20, okay? So um, he, that is the summary of the law. The summary of the law is this. It's love God as a priority, right? And yet the priest said, oh, I don't, we don't know about that. Let's just, it's okay if we treat, uh, cheat in this way because God will surely accept the leftovers, uh, uh, and, uh, you know, this service, it's so burdensome, it's so contemptible, and uh, I wish you didn't have to do it, but I guess we got to go and do it. It's our job. And uh, that was the attitude of the, of the priests. They certainly had lost their love for God. And it was reflected in the dishonorable behavior of their sacrifices. You know what it says in reply? It says in verse 10, Oh, that one of you would shut the temple doors so that you would, not light, you would not light useless fires on my altar. I am not pleased with you. So what is he saying there? Close the place down. What you're doing is useless. Better not do it at all. Better not do it at all than, than, than uh, offer such uh, a contemptible sacrifice. You see, man looks on the outward appearance. God looks on the heart. The outward show means nothing to God if it's not accompanied by heart devotion. Now, if it's accompanied by heart devotion, even the smallest gift to God is acceptable. How do we know that? The widow's offering. The widow's offering. Good, good example. All right. Just the widow's offering. Just a small mite, you know. And, 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 and Jesus saw her heart and said, you know, she's given more than everybody who put in all that money because she's given her all. And Jesus knew that, that she was giving her best to the Lord. It relates to Esau and Jacob, so, well, like, so 
Jacob gave his first fruits, and Esau kind of gave leftovers. Esau gave leftovers. That's right. And he despised his birthright, didn't he? That's right. He did not value God. Yeah. And it says, Jesus says, whoever gives a cup of cold water in my name, he's given it to me. See? I mean, just a cup of cold water. Just a little effort to draw some water for somebody. It's like like the woman at the well giving a, a cup of cold water to Jesus. Right? If it's done with the hard attitude of love, Jesus receives it as a precious gift. It's valuable to him. It doesn't have to be a, a big, expensive gift. It can be. But even the small gifts that are given with an attitude to love, an attitude to honor, are received with love from the Lord's hands. It's a wonderful, wonderful example for us. So, so what the Lord is saying here is this. You know, better to close the doors than to give this stuff. This stuff is not pleasing to me. It, it, this, this stuff just displeases me so much. Rather, close the doors of the temple. Don't go through the act. Don't go through the outward observance. Better just to close the doors. You know, we can, we can look with some disdain upon the actions of these priests but we have to examine our own hearts to see what is the value that we place upon the Lord. Uh, do we treat him as contemptible? Do we go through the motions? Do we uh, offer less than the best to the Lord? Uh, are we guilty of the same sin of, of the priests? Well, let's just read chapter 2, verse 1 to 2. Somebody read those two verses. And that it's following on in the same idea. What do you take from these verses? And you know, for, for leaders, there is a double responsibility, right? There is their personal responsibility before God. But as you have well said, it, it, they, they, had, they were like parents and, and uh, were due to set a good example. And so the double responsibility for leaders is not only to make sure my own heart is right, make sure I give a good example for the people who are following me. And uh, that, that is, that's so important for parents. That's so important for priests. You know, the priests were meant to lead the way for the people. 
They were meant to be the, the moral uh, icons, the moral, the moral standard uh, for the nation. And uh, if they weren't being that moral standard, what would the nation be likely to accuse them of? Which sin is, is the one that Jesus hated the most? Hypocrisy. Hypocrisy. And uh, uh, that's why parents need to be very, very, uh, very, very devoted to, to being a good example because if they aren't and they're saying, uh, we're Christians, but we do this on the side and the kids see it, it's hypocrisy. It, it, I tell you, in, in all my history of counseling, the, the people, the Christians that are most turned off are Christians who had parents who are hypocrites. They're, they're the ones who get turned off. They're the ones who really, really get turned off because they see a, 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 an outward display of something, but inwardly there's a, there's a, 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 a defection from obedience. And, and this is what was happening to these priests. And so they were polluting the whole nation. So God was rightly angry with them. Yeah. Very good. So the blessing is there for those for obedience, but the trouble, the curse is upon people who disobey. See, you have not set your heart to honor me. I believe that this is a principle that follows in the Christian life as well. I believe that this principle of God working with his people follows in, in the, in the uh, uh, life of believers. When we honor God, God will in various ways bless us. When we don't honor God, God is going to discipline us and it's going to feel like a curse. There's going to be, there's going to be pain, there's going to be trouble, there's going to be losses, you see because we are not learning to love God back. We are not trusting that he loves us. We're not learning to love God back. We're starting to disparage the things, the spiritual things. We're down that slippery slope into carelessness as, the, as these priests were. So often what God does is bring a painful trial into our lives so that, so that we will have to, we'll have to experience the... the, the the consequence of being so dishonoring to the Lord. The consequences can be severe. We have to be very, very careful because we, we serve a holy God and God is a God of, of, of love, but he hates this hypocrisy and, and, and he's going to weed it out of our lives before he takes it to heaven. And so Christians are capable of losing everything in life as a result of this consequence of, of, uh, of uh, not loving God, what's the thing they can't lose? Your you can't lose your salvation. But you know what? You can lose everything else, including your physical life.
Yes. And, and we, we have to be careful because Paul was, did not suffer losses because he was under God's judgment. He suffered losses because he was choosing to love God above this world, right? He was choosing to serve God. And, and, and trouble can come from that direction as well, right? And so we shouldn't look that, on that as a curse from God. We should look, look on that as a privilege. I remember a, a missionary from Turkey years ago talking about his uh, little uh, fellowship in, in somewhere in, in Turkey. And uh, uh, Turkey, as you know, is a, is a Muslim nation. And in various places in Turkey, there's a lot of persecution. Uh, and these two young men were walking to the meeting that night. And the secret police knew that they were Christians and they were heading for the meeting. And so they beat them up. They beat them to a pulp. But they continued on to the meeting. And when they got there, the, the people were all upset, you know, that they'd been beaten so badly and they were fixing their wounds and, and caring for them. These two young men said, you know, don't weep for us. We count it an honor to have been beaten for Jesus. We counted an honor to have beaten, be beaten for Jesus. So, that, so that's not a curse. When Christians, when Christians serve the Lord and, and they, they go through trials as a result of it, that's, that's an acceptable sacrifice, and God is well pleased with it. That's an honor. Uh, any other comments about this passage? Because we're going to close right there and, and uh, not go further. Uh, uh, any other thoughts on what we've been talking about? I think even what we were talking about about blessing and whether um, like suffering's as a result of our obedience or suffering as a result of external circumstances, it still comes back to the main thing of what's your heart before the Lord. Because the more you focus on that, the more wisdom you have to see if what you're doing has been wrong or Understanding, yeah, whether it's blessing or cursing or from God because of what you've done or not from God. And, and I think we get before the Lord and we say, Lord, is, what is this? Is this a curse or is this a blessing? <laughs> Sometimes conflicts can be a blessing. That's right. And uh, uh, the, the issue, as you have well said, is heart attitude. When my heart is right, when my heart is right, the Lord loves me, and the Lord is going to, whatever comes into my life is, come, is for my blessing, even though it's hard times. God does not waste anything, whether it's uh, something in our life that was wrong, and then we write it before the Lord, and see how God can use that as a witness to someone else who's struggling with the same doubt. Yes. And this is where I come back to Romans 8.28, we all know it so well, that the it's not so much that we have done wrong, but that God can work for those who are called and who love him, can work it to his good. Yeah. Nothing is ever wasted by God. Absolutely. And we know this, you see, we all make mistakes, and we all at one point or another dishonor the Lord. So what do you do when you become aware of that? Forgiveness. You just forget the grace of forgiveness is upon us, you know <laughs> We can always turn, we can always say, Lord, I messed up, please forgive me and cleanse me. And the Lord does not reward us according to our iniquities. In other words, 
he could do far worse upon us for our sins, you know. He could, he could damn us, but he, he, he never will do that. He'll never destroy his children. He'll never be separated from us. We'll never be separated from him. And even the judgments that are in our lives are designed for our good. Not because God is all upset with us and he's throwing lightning bolts at us, you see. That's, his, that's not his heart. His heart is to mold and to make us into the people we ought to be so that we trust that he loves us and we learn to love him back. And that's really the message of this, this first chapter of Malachi. It's, it really is a message that's so modern and so forced today. The two big things in the Christian life, learn to trust God's love for you and learn to love him back. It's really a simple message, and, and God is invested in that. He's teaching us both of those lessons, learning how to love him back. Well, let's, let's just uh, close in a word of prayer. Alex, I wonder if you could close for us. Would you do that?